inspired, on fire, hot wired, downward facing broad. When I was growing up, people would say, how are you? And you would answer, fine. But now people say, busy. Busy, 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 or busy. Because busy is a new badge of honor, right? You want to be busy, but not too busy. So you plan things, but then you try to cancel them. <laughs> like tonight, you probably want to cancel tonight, right? Like, oh, I'm going to have to go down there and laugh. I mean, some of you right now are counting the minutes till you can get home and take off your bra. <laughs> My name's Deborah Kimmett, and... Oh, yes, that's Bert, my little COVID dog. I could have probably bought a sports car for the same price. But anyone that needed a dog during COVID knows they became your soulmates. He's my true love. And we're coming to you live from my little crooked apartment in the beach in Toronto. And uh, I just love living out here. It's on the verge of Toronto, but not downtown. And it's until the summertime, it's not as busy. But speaking of busy, boy, I was busy this weekend. I was down on Queen West, and my gosh, that area has changed so much, eh? Used to be so bohemian, you know, sort of a little off-center. For me, it was a real walk down memory lane because Queen Street West was where I hung out back in the day. I worked at Second City by day or early evening, and after midnight, I ran a booze can at Queen and Spadina. It was right above the TD Bank, and it was called Patty and Richards. And by the way, there were two Patty and Richards. And um, I was in my 20s. And, you know, we'd hang out till five in the morning and end up, before we go to bed, we'd go at this diner, and I think it was called Barney's. And our big idea was to eat breakfast before you went to bed, right? That way you don't have to miss the most important meal of the day. And um, if I was sober enough, I'd also go home and squeeze in the 20-minute workout. Because who wants to exercise hungover? I mean, that's practical tips for you 20-year-olds. I don't know if you remember that 20-minute workout, though. It was airing like two or three times a day. And it was in the Much Music building. Do you remember that? That was like the centerpiece for media back then. And also, which used to be back there, was this really exotic restaurant. It was called The Bamboo. Oh, my goodness. I mean, Indonesian food. We were from Napanee, you know, macaroni and cheese territory. And I was one of those irritating daughters who always tried to get my very plain eating dad to try an exotic dish like, hey, dad, try pad thai. No one had ever heard of pad thai. And my dad, I just love my dad because, you know, he'd bring up all his friends to come and see a show. And they were like, yeah, Jimmy, let's do this. And you know, they'd all order pad thai and exotic satay and all that. And my dad would order it, but then he'd say, now you got that pad thai. Can you hold the sprouts and hold the peanut sauce? Hey, instead of noodles, just put a steak and fries on that plate. Such good memories of my dad back then. He always supported my work. And one of the places that I did work back then doing comedy was uh, the Rivoli. And it's still there, still booming. It's so great to have it still there. And I had this flashback of the first time I did a show there with my 
writing and comedy partner, the late Deborah Jarvis. She and I performed there 42 years ago before women were even funny. We were called the two Debs and there were, it was, you know, really female comedy duels. I don't, I don't know. It was a very rare thing. We were special. And I remember we got a bunch of gigs to perform a two person show. And we first started writing that show. We sat down and we looked at each other and said, now what, what would two women write about? Because there was not, nobody doing it, right? We had no mentors, so we just imitated men. That's what we did. Anyway, you cut forward 40 years. And that night when I was down there, there was a comedy fest called the Lady Fest, jam-packed full of hilarious women, all unique, all taking their place, killing it on stage with no apologies. And it really makes your heart... I don't know, full, because you really see that a lot in the last five or six years has changed for the female comic. Anyway, uh, really was a great little memory. Speaking of someone who's been killing it for a long time, our guest today is hilarious. She's one funny broad, a Canadian icon, Mary Walsh. Now, she started out at the wonderful comedy sketch group. It was Codco. And then they did the show, This Hour Has 22 Minutes. You may have heard that one, all her amazing characters that she created. And today we're going to talk to her a little bit about her novel, Crying for the Moon, what it was like being a comic back in the day, and how to stay healthy and visible as you get older. Hey, Mary, welcome all the way from St. John's. Actually, on- I'm in a place called Cachuzas Where's today. That? which is just at, it's in Conception Bay. It's part of Conception Harbor. Uh, it's where shooting the third season of The Mrs. Downstairs, which is a web uh, broadcast. And we shoot it. We use my little place here in Cachuzas as the, as the um, you know, production office. And we rent a B&B, the next house over, to use as the hero house. So I'm just out here, just finishing up. We're just going into our third week now. Oh, wonderful. I appreciate yeah. you taking time. Now, before we start, I just want to say, I just finished your book, Crying for the Moon. I just loved it. Oh, loved good, it. Deborah. That's oh, great. You know what? I, I have three things I want to say about it. First off, there were little images in it that resonated so deeply with me, like sharpening the pencil with a knife. And <laughs> And the carnation milk gluing the books together, like used as glue. Yeah, yeah. Totally what I remember from my childhood. Right, 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 right. That yeah. big knife. I don't know if I made much of that, but that I didn't grow up with them, my parents. But in their house, there was just that one big knife. Sometimes you could see it stuck down in a jam jar. You know what I mean? And it was the one that cut the bread. You know, it was it did everything, right? It was just one tool. You just needed one tool. <laughs> I know. I kind of wonder. And my dad, like, he would clean his ear with a nail. Like, it was just like, they were such hard-nosed people. It's a wonder they ever got to adulthood. I know, I know. Amazing. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say about the book is the character of Maureen, there was a thing that she's doing which I used to do, and I wondered if you did, where you were saying funny stuff, but you had no idea that you were a funny person. When she's really young, she says something like, oh, she, she was hot, and then 
She said, oh, I'm, I'm having hot flashes. Yes, yes. Inadvertent humor. It's always been my strength. I've no idea that I'm being funny. And then everyone laughs and I think, oh, yes, perfect. We'll go on. We'll pretend I meant that to be funny. (laughs) That's my whole life. I was uh, laughing about that because I thought I never had someone, um, you know, put that into words. So I wanted to pick up on something you said. Um, You were what you said, not the funniest in the family at times. Where did you finally get, oh, I am a very funny person? Certainly when we started CODCO, I still didn't feel like I was a very funny person. But CODCO was considered to be quite funny. You know, we got good reviews in Toronto and then we came home and those who didn't hate us for attacking the Catholic Church were, um, you know, um, uh, were very, very positive. And I remember being in the bathroom at somebody's party and hearing people talk about CODCO and how funny they were. And then I remember thinking, hmm, I'm a part of that. And so, you know, and that was very big deal for me. And uh, I'm part of that successfully funny crowd. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, they, that was a very, you know, Codco was very, very important for me. And work has always been very important for me uh, because, you know, I kind of found myself, I guess, you know, through work and still continue to find work the, the the thing that I do the best I'm you know my friend my very very dear close friend just died and I hadn't we hadn't been close in many years but we had she was a when, when I was coming into young womanhood and she was like a viking goddess so there was no point going I mean, she, was, she was just so great to have as a friend but not if you were going out to bars to pick up fellas because you just became completely invisible but for whatever magical reason, I never found Anne-Marie. I never resented that, which was weird for me because I pretty well resented everything. And I wasn't afraid of Anne-Marie in some kind of way. And I was afraid of everything. And uh, so Anne-Marie just died. And I saw her last Monday in the hospital. And she said, I love you, Mary. And I said very quickly, you know, like not wanting to have anything to do with uh, any emotional thing. And I said, I love you too, Emery. And then I turned away from the bed to walk away. And I came back and I said, I'm just not very good at this, I guess. And I real, you know, mostly work gives me a chance to be more in control of things than I managed to be in life, I guess, you know, and um, yeah, relationships. And they're very difficult, aren't they? Life is really hard to work out and sometimes work though hard and and relentless and long is is so satisfying and plus you get awards <laughs> you do i get nominated and, and Marie should have gotten an award for all that she did all those years but that you know mostly people don't get awards yeah i know uh, i'm sorry sonia smith used to say that to me we used to get awards when there was nobody else to award they would give us awards when we were on tv as Codco. And I used to say to Sonia, who I'd gone to Ryerson with, oh, you know, they had to give them to somebody. And she said, well, not me. I thought, oh, my God, you know, because, you know, I had no gratitude. Uh, You know, I was that was back in the days when I was still drinking, I guess, in the 80s, the the bad end of my drinking. And uh, yeah, yeah. No, I had no no feeling of, oh, my God. And then they stopped giving me awards. And then I got an award. And I can't tell you, I practically fell to my knees. 
and sobbed out my gratitude and <laughs> and thankfulness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the when I started out in comedy, the male female ratio was like four men to two women, and forty two late years later at Second City, it's now five men to three women they couldn't bring us up to the numbers right because we're not funny um and i when we i had three together, women in codco and four men tommy greg andy wasn't there when we started Robert, tommy greg Robert. and uh another so I, we were pretty well i right. think am i forgetting someone Robert Joy. when we first started i think there was we were equal Myself and Diane and Kathy and Greg Malone and Tommy Sexton and Paul Samets was the person who was in our first show, Caught on a Stick. And then he, then when Andy came back from England, then we became seven with four, four men, Bob Joy and, and Andy and Greg and Tommy and myself and Diane and Kathy. That was in our, our uh, theatrical, you know, uh, times. Quoted? And when we were on TV, there was, was there four of them? Yeah, Greg and Tommy and Andy, and just myself and Kathy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Does the ratio Three of them and four of matter? Us. Because a few years ago, CBC brought equal women to equal men out to the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, and the incredible uh, energy in the backstage and everything changed when it was equal. Has the has being a woman ever been a problem for your comedy because it doesn't seem like it has but maybe deep oh, down definitely well, you know i mean uh, you know the, the the one of the things was you know kathy jones and i were always highly competitive uh, and um and it seemed like a dirty shameful secret whereas like andy and andy jones and greg and tommy were highly highly competitive too as people are you know there's only so much it's only at 22 minutes that you're on and that was totally acceptable that men would be in competition, but it was it was like this dirty secret that Kathy and I had that we were you know in competition for these roles and yeah no and and you know uh, even when we started this hour is twenty two minutes and we had Greg Toomey one of the funniest people in the world and Rick Mercer and myself and Kathy and Kathy and I had the had the K whatever it was called rating because we'd been on Codco for six or seven years then. But Greg and, and and Rick, who I have to say are two of the nicest, um, I guess they're not as young anymore, but at the time they were young men, you'd never want to meet. But they still were very fucking dismissive of us and oh. how we saw things. And, you know, the emotional way that we might approach something seemed to be, ooh, you know, get that, you know. And so even though we were older <laughs> and more experienced, and Kathy and I found, took it hard, you know what I mean? Took it to heart, you know? It was often difficult, you know? And so you had to fight really hard, you know, and sometimes, you know. How does that fighting though, for me, um, I totally relate to that. You fought, I'm on a different thing, but when I do solo comedy, that's why I like it. Cause no one can take it away because and I didn't come to solo comedy until I was 48. And, and, I, and I got on stage and I remember thinking, oh, I could finally think. I'm just up here in front of people now, I can finally think. 
because there was nobody second guessing and telling me. But right before I would go on, they would even at 48 tell me I was awful. Who are you? What are you doing? And you're just like, wow, wow. Like experience doesn't really matter in this world, but that's where you become defiant. So where has that sort of defiance actually served how wonderfully talented you are in your writing and your still writing? Like how has that, is your, is that under girdle, you know, the girder underneath you kind of thing? For sure. I would say, um, you know, um, you know, I did the Halifax Comedy Festival not that long ago and fell apart completely. I'm, I, I'm unlike you. I mean, I, I do I do a one woman show now and I'm just going on the road with it across the country in late October. But, uh, you know, and that's all right. I'm all right. I'm all right with that now. But sometimes when I'm doing new material and I'm by myself, you know, I came up with a sketch comedy troupe and, uh, you know, it is so good to have someone else with you, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's just like so good. And so sometimes I find it quite lonely to be out there on the road with just the technician and going from town to town. You think, oh, my God, what are you at? You know, like, uh, should you not be doing something? It's not like people are so, you know, people are so good. People are so good. People say, oh, we love you. We love what you did there. You know, sometimes I'll be walking down the street in a town that I don't know. And people would say, you know, my mom loves you. So I got to get my picture taken with you because you won't believe I met you and stuff like that. And it's so nice. People are so good. And I appreciate that so much. But sometimes I think I wish I'd, you know, been less of, you know, a, a burgeoning alcoholic and had gone to school and gotten a degree and gotten a corner office at the university and gotten that kind of. But, you know, my husband is that and he often begrudges me the amount of, you know, um, well, love, I guess. Or, you know, people are so good. I mean, they are so good and so loving in so many ways. And people love to have a laugh, don't they? But in the oh my world, having a laugh is not really seen as being worth very much, is it? You know, you don't kind of get a because you gave people a laugh. You don't get a corner office or anything. I wonder if it's too. I don't like the loneliness of the road and I've started working with other younger people and that's really helped me like in terms of them opening or something like that. But I do wonder, and I don't know if this is your experience, but I don't have any big role models of women that were 20 years older than me doing stand-up. So sometimes I'm doing stand-up, I'm 66. And I'm like, shouldn't I be home just knitting something like I have and no one's holding me back but I'm feeling like is that am I supposed to still be doing this and so I maybe, know people say to me how old are you when I put on the Mara costume how old are you like this is disgusting but I, uh the but you know what's her name you know our great uh sometimes she was very mean but she was just uh, unstoppable um you know she was out there who was 70 it? what was her name I don't know. I, you know who I mean. Uh, she she used to do fa the fashion police too. Oh, um, well, she never stopped. Joan Joan Rivers. Yes, Joan Rivers. I mean, she was amazing and incredible, and and just uh, and I, I stole never, all I was, her jokes when I was at Second City, not knowing that everybody would know that I stole them. <laughs> and and I stole all her jokes. One of her jokes is every time I cross I have an IUD every time I cross my legs the uh, garage door opens <laughs> and I stole it 
And somebody said, that's Joan Rivers' joke. And I was like, how do they know that? Because back in the day, there was no online, right? I love You know, Richard Pryor said when he got up first as a comedian, he stole all of Bill Cosby's jokes. Wow. And uh, and that, you know, and then he would call it in his own mind an homage to Bill Cosby. And Richard Pryor must be one of the most brilliant uh, comedians in the world. So he did exactly the same thing as you. Exactly. Can but I tell then you- somebody, Eddie Murphy said, who would ever think that I'd be living, <laughs> living, living a quiet life at home with my family and Bill Cosby would be in jail. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> because Bill Cosby was so, you know, used to say that they were, you know, just bad people. Like, uh, you know, he phoned Eddie Murphy once and said, uh, you know, um, uh, you've you've got to stop using that bad language and it's terrible and you're giving it a terrible and and Eddie Murphy called Richard Pryor and said that that uh, and Richard Pryor said tell him to go fuck himself. <laughs> so yeah. you said something anyway, about that, away from a, a hero, but you know uh, Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara, of course, were just a little ahead of us, mm-hmm. and uh, I loved them and I loved the stuff that they did. And I remember always resenting that there was so, and we had the same makeup people came to Codco, uh, uh, Bev Sheckman and, and Judy Cooper Seely, two absolute miracle workers in terms of makeup and hair. But they had just done SCTV. And I remember saying to Bev, I don't, you know, I'm watching this. When I watch SCTV, I want to see more of Andrea and more of of um, of Catherine and, and less of John Candy, though I love John Candy too. And she said, well, it depends on, you know, it all depended on, on who was doing all the writing. And it made me feel like, oh, ashamed that they were doing less writing. But sometimes if you're not getting the response, like I would say things in Codco, uh, you know, uh, and, and then I would say them and then Greg Malone would say them and then everybody would laugh. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. not, that, not that Greg Malone was going around repeating my lines that much, but I did note on a couple of occasions when I said something and then Greg said it. Uh, you know, and then people would laugh at what Greg said, because you have a rip, you get, you get, like I find now my family finds me funny. They never did before, but now that people find me funny, my family finds me funny because that's the, that's the thing. So we do what others do and, and you know what I mean? And so I'm sure that Andrea and, and, uh, and, and Catherine O'Hara had immense amounts of stuff that they wanted to do and sketches brilliant sketches that they they could have written but that the support wasn't really there for that right you know they didn't know and it does yeah. impact you and I think you become I become so angry I've still got this rage inside of me because I had to fight so hard to be heard also I kind of felt I wanted to be seen but not to be seen it was weird but I know I know yeah yeah you said um you know about your alcoholism when you got sober, which is a long time ago, did that change how you approached your comedy? Or was it, did it make you more focused or were you more nervous? Because once you got sober, any difference that way? I used to think before I got sober that I, I couldn't write anything unless I had a few drinks. Or how would I ever, I, I didn't drink before I went on stage or, you know, only on a few disastrous occasions. And uh, before I went, you know, to the TV show, only on one disastrous occasion. But, uh, you know, but writing and sort of settling in. But I don't think, I think what happened was what happened to me 
was I gave up alcohol and I took up work at a more frantic pace. So I became a workaholic to replace the, you know what I mean? One compulsion to replace another. I fell deeply in love with a lot of people too, like in a compulsive kind of way. You know, I mean, I was replacing one compulsion with another. It, it's not like, uh, you know, it, but the new ones weren't as, uh, weren't, but you know, like I remember thinking at some point, wow, everybody says you can't do all this, you know, that you can't just keep working like this and having a family and doing the thing and going and, and then I'd be thinking, but wow, I guess I can. And then the next thing I'd know, I'd be, you know, coming out of anesthetic, having just had surgery, you know, lower back surgery again. You know what I mean? Like I would, you know, there's a lot of stuff about being an early alcoholic and also coming from an alcoholic family where you're not really dealing with a full deck at all. You don't, you know, you don't see things as they are. You see them as you'd like them to be. And, uh, and, and you live in a fantasy world of, you know, of denial of what you don't like and, and total acceptance of total bullshit. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so there was a long period of time of trying to, you know, accept the world on the world's terms, you know, which I still, still struggled. That's not right. I think that should be different. You know, you know, I'm going to do something about that. I'll think. <laughs> Are you as at this age though, are you more on a day to basis, daily basis, inside your body more? Like you can own who you are more. I find it yes. doesn't slip yeah, away. Definitely. As fast. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm so grateful for having gotten old because you know now. Now I look in the mirror and I think, oh my God, I, I'm an old woman. And then immediately I think, I, I, yeah, and that's what I am. I am an old woman. This is perfect. Whereas before I'd look in the mirror and I'd go, oh, my eyes are too small. My lips are too thin. My nose is all weird. My face is so weird. I, you know, like this is, why can't I be better? What can I do to fix this horrible mess of me? You know, the outside of me, let alone the inside of me. But getting older, you know, and it's pretty well proven, Deborah, that um, by any number of studies, that an, that old age is a happier age, Right that yeah. we get increasingly happier as we get older. So if we've been given the great gift of getting older and happier, it's just amazing, isn't it? Don't you think? I think getting sober, I'm not, I don't think I would have gotten older had I not no. gotten sober, you know? But, uh, but yeah, it is, uh, you know, I'm very, uh, I'm very much more content, but I'm, you know, I'm still kind of, you know, pushing myself too far because I don't know how to say no, or I can say no, if I say no to everything, or I can say yes, if I say yes to everything, I haven't found that, you know, the, the lovely middle. Yes. I don't know if I ever will perhaps, perhaps just before I drop dead. Yeah. The last breath will be, Oh, I'm peaceful. And then I'll be, yeah. uh, I have two last questions before we wrap up. One is I read in an interview, I got, went to the deep dive of Mary Welch and uh, there was an interview where you mentioned this thing about a curve for, comedians where it's a loop or something or a horseshoe kind of feeling of we're depressives but then it goes up do you remember no this? it wasn't comedians it's oh it's people just people that there's it? a you you bend for what happiness okay well it, it's you know you're at your lowest at around 40 and then around 50 it starts picking up again you're up here early on you know what i mean and then you know, 30s, 40s, you know, they're, they're a little bit, you're in a bit of a, a slew of despond there. And then at around 50, it starts picking up. 
and that's despite uh, your sure. uh, gender or I mean men are of course happier than oh. women though women smile more uh oh my god uh but um uh, but yeah for you know despite your your health even and uh, not to say that everybody's uh, you know out to lunch happy but you're happier than you were before if you're a really unhappy person you get a little bit happier if you're not that unhappy you get happy so that that they've proven in numerous studies that um uh that uh, that we get happier as we get older I love that, but I, I I find it funny that I thought of it as comedians because yeah. I know when I'm dark and down, like I've got a divorce and I was really happy to be divorced, but then I had this ridiculous affair about a year after my divorce and I've never been kicked down by life like that. But as I'm having this terrible addictive relationship, I'm on the ground literally with a boot to my head thinking, well, this will be funny. Like there is a part where you're just like, okay, this would be funny. Like I'm always in that writer mode. When I'm yeah, the, the uh, that's good. I like that about things. I saw this comedian in with Jerry Jerry Seinfeld, uh, comedians in cars. I'm mostly quoting, of course, men, aren't I? Isn't that terrible? But anyway, he was there, and he said, you know, he was saying about how many comedians are such good actors. Uh, but actors can't be comedians because he said it's not a thing. It's a way you see things like as you're about to get kicked in the head, you think this could be funny. You know what I mean? And it's a way of viewing the world that people just who are comedians just have. Right. And yeah. I think a lot of uh, a lot of Newfoundlanders are just born comedians because they are viewing the world in just that way. Right. Well, and also when you've hit, you've had impoverishment and in Newfoundland too, being discriminated against in the early, you know, like all those, you go, you end up having a perspective, like I don't belong to the crowd. So I think for a comedian in particular, belonging to the crowd is the worst thing that could possibly happen. You'll, as soon as a, a group wants me, I'm like, oh, that could be dangerous. Like I was going to join a choir and it's like, I don't, I could sing, but it's more like, I don't want to be part of that. I want to mock that. Like, I want to mock. Right, but the, 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 the clue to, you know, fun is going in there, having the singing, and then mocking them anyway. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, we'll see about that. I'm just so grumpy as a group activity. So our podcast is called Downward Facing Broads, and it's really about, like, how, you know, at this age, you've overcome so many different things. But could you tell us one perhaps incident in your life where you were really down and you really felt like you were kicked in the head and you didn't know if you were going to get up again? And then how you kind of got your sense of humor back? If you have one at your fingertips, if you don't, you can just do that. in a God, There's so many. I mean, first of all, being given away when I was eight months old, I thought I'd never get over that. And I haven't really gotten over it, but I now do see that many, many good things came from that. Living with that, um, you know, that um, uh, that abusive, uh, you know, physically, mentally and spiritually abusive person uh, when I was 18 and in my early 20s, I thought I'd never get away from him because I'd never I don't know. People would always say, why didn't you leave him? And I would. Well, first of all, I thought I could fix it and that it was my job to fix it. So I was always going back in there to fix it. Secondly, I suppose I must have felt at some level, you know, somebody said some uh, British um, writer said a woman this time thank god said that uh, 
the life force is stronger uh, than the force to, li- to, to, to get out because you know you will live, but you're not sure that if you leave, you will live, that, that you won't be killed, right? Mm-hmm. Because that has, that's the experience people have. So I wasn't sure I'd get out of that. I, I uh, you know, those last few years of drinking, I didn't really feel, I thought, what was the point of giving up drinking? I wasn't really worth the trouble, really, I didn't feel, you know. And, but I, then I had my son and then he was three by the time I quit drinking and wish I had, anyway, wish, 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 shoulda, coulda, woulda. Uh, but I didn't think I was going to come out of that. And every relationship I've been in, I, I always think I'm never going to get out of here. How am I going to get out of here? I'm never going to get out of here. So like yourself, but I do enjoy a group. Um, nobody asked me to be in this choir, unfortunately, um, because I can't sing. We were at the at, we were burying Emery yesterday and someone said can someone sing and Emery's sister who I started to be best friends with in grade six started to sing Nearer My God to Thee which Emery would I'm oh. sure she wouldn't have liked it but it was beautiful and it was so eerie and I always wanted to sing and I always thought in the same way that I always thought when I was drinking that everybody was drinking like me I always thought Maureen couldn't sing even though, but she has a beautiful voice I always thought I Oh, even Maureen can sing. This is not fair. But uh, anyway, yeah, I always wanted to sing. And, and so I would, uh, if I could, I would have joined that choir. Uh, I would join that choir, Deborah. And don't put anything off because uh, my friend, um, not just Anne-Marie, she went, it was six weeks from when they said something was wrong till she drew her last breath. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been spending any time with her. And I made a decision that I was going to spend some time, you know, despite the fact that I'm busy and it's so much easier for me to be busy and so caught up in work and all that. But I did get to spend, you know, two or three or four days with her, you know, on and off visiting. And it was worth so much. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I know it's not my, this podcast is not about giving advice, but, uh, it can be. You can give advice. You know, just, you know, those people, you know, that you haven't seen in a while or those people. And fuck it. If they don't want to talk to you, talk to them. Get mm-hmm. them on the blower, you know, say, like, let's uh, come over to my house and have coffee or let me take you out to dinner or all those things. It just uh, I'm so happy that I spent those few. And Emery and I, when we were when we were I was in grade 11, I guess, and she was in first year university or maybe she was working then. I live with my Aunt May, and Aunt May always made a Sunday dinner of roast and three veg and stuff like that. And we used to go down to the harbor instead of going to 1215 Mass and pick up a sailor uh, because, you know, they were the only strangers around who were the sailor and bring him home to Aunt May's for dinner, for, you know, roast beef dinner. It was all very sweet in a way, Uh, but it sounds bad to go down (laughs) to the harbor and pick up a sailor. But uh, And the great freedom we used to feel when we'd be drinking running down Duckworth Street and just cooping down and doing our pee in some uh, in some doorway. I know how weird that is, it sounds now, but it was like, oh, wow, we are really free. <laughs> we can pee where we like. <laughs> I think that's the oh, anyway, thing about yeah. being older. You really do treasure these incredible memories that at the time you were so busy trying to get to the next place in your life. And then now at this age, I look back and I go, I wish I could have savored some of that. But 
I do. But when you were really young, like 19 and 20, I didn't have those ambitions at all. I had that time to be going around picking up sailors on the on the thing. You know what I mean? I didn't get ambitious until a bit until, like they say, that that laser time, that Mm -hmm. slew of despond when you go into that not that happy thing because you're not seeing people you're not doing you want to get ahead you want to make your mark you want to be something you know what I mean I don't remember when I was like 18 17 18 well I did have yes I wanted to be something I guess but I didn't know how to go about it so you know I decided just to drink yeah that would be a good way I was a really heavy drinker never a good drinker never the kind of good drinker i wanted to be you know the kinds who could stay sober despite drinking a full bottle of grand marnier i knew those people but tragically deborah i was never one of them i know i wasn't either i was pathetic uh you know one thing i'm going to pretend i'm tom powers but you know how tom powers always brings it into something what he did with you but you and i met one time, I think it was in Halifax at, uh, or maybe St. John's, at the debaters. You did the debaters. It was in a hotel. Yes. Um, we were not doing theaters. And there was a guy up on stage, and you and I had been talking about codependency and like, are we too codependent, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember saying, oh, I wish that guy would win. And he was absolutely not very good. And you went, oh, you really are a codependent, aren't you? <laughs> Of course you would. And uh, after that, I felt this connection like, wow, when people have had similar drinking histories, codependency, you kind of connect really quickly about something emotional, don't you find? Like yeah, you no, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They never asked me to be on the debaters again. I don't know what I did wrong on that debaters. It was in Halifax. Yes, and I was debating uh, one of the guys from the Cogco, um, not Andy, not Robert. Who was it? Oh, Greg, Greg Malone. Yes, yeah. and we were—they were serious debates then. And I had to say I was for God, and he had to say he was against God. Right now, of course, they have ridiculous debates. They're just fun, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I know we only know each other on in that small way and on Facebook and stuff but I really appreciate but Deborah it. when I read your stuff on Facebook it's so good when you put the writings that you're doing that you're now putting into the it's just so readable and so it's so narratively um, uh, uh, compelling and it has a you know a forward motion that I want to read you know how hard it is on Facebook to read long things mm. but I always read yours right from the beginning to the end and I always think how great it is. And I feel a little bit, a little stirring of jealousy. I think, oh, Deborah's really good. She's really not good. <laughs> I think, oh, the need for approval is like, I love Facebook because you can get the approval. But I wrote my book off and on Facebook because I, again, I do need feedback. And I'm also such a needy person. I love, you know, people liking me. But when I actually apply, they took my book and they said they're going to publish it. They go, it cannot have been published anywhere. And I was like, Facebook, shit. So I had to go all through Facebook and remove everything. I told them the truth, but it, it's, yeah, it's, I, that's why I asked about the novel when we first started, because I find, uh, 
I'm a comedian. I want their approval right away. So you, at least with Facebook, you kind of get it right away. Yeah, I didn't mind that. You know, I, well, well, actually, tell you the truth, if I'm going to be really truthful, I, when years ago, I had to write this um, uh, this um, movie. Somebody give me the, you know, you know, some money to write a movie. And I, I thought, oh, this will be Simpsons. It's a children's movie. I'll just do it. It's a sim children's movie. It's got to be simple. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even sit down to write it. It was like beyond me. I had no idea how to do it. And I talked to my friend, Andy Jones, and Andy said, well, get someone to come in and, you know, be your assistant. And then you'll be so ashamed that you haven't written anything that you'll write something. And then I got Sherry White to come in and be my assistant. And I got through that movie. And it got produced and everything. So, but anyway, I've always had an assistant and I hired an assistant and Monique was my assistant. And when I was, and she would, I would, I would write things out by hand and then I would read them out to her. And occasionally Monique had one of those faces that really you could see everything going across it. And I'd go, Monique does not like that. She's not liking that. And I go, should I change that a little bit? Do you think Monique? Mm -hmm. You know, she wouldn't interfere, but it'd be like, mm, I don't know. And then sometimes she'd go, if I tell her a story, she'd go, oh, my God, that story about your father, that should go in the book. So it isn't like I didn't have. That's good. Yeah, I did have that. some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was a very and and uh, Jamie, Jamie Pitt, too. They were both. They helped me. Oh, my God, immensely. You know, they were so supportive. So I know they're very yes, good. I've had that. Yeah. The Sherry White thing, um, patching, uh, what's the name? Matching and dispatching. Yeah, yeah, I was getting the middle one wrong. Joel, was Joel? Hines. Yeah, Hines. Joel Thomas Hines. I was in a movie with him and he was a criminal and he never got out of character. Oh. It made me laugh. And I was a guard and I decided I'm not going to get out of character because he scared the shit out of me because he wouldn't like even at the break he'd be just like so yeah I'm thinking oh. anyway so we did the movie he is the most brilliant actor just a genius oh. a gen have you read any of his books yes he's brilliant and then yeah. we go to the opening and I'm like this I'm not a guard and he goes up to Brendan and talks through Brendan my son who wrote did the movie I was so scared of your mother <laughs> I know. And, now, and and now they have this wonderful son who I love his work. I can't remember his oh, name. He's amazing, Percy. Oh he's my incredible. god. Unbelievable. Yeah. The three of them. They're yeah. just such a yeah. talent. Anyway, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you for being patient. Thank you, Deborah. So and thank you for sharing the stuff that you did on Facebook. It's really, really great. Okay. And just carrying on. And you know, sometimes it's like, oh, did you read Ursula Le Guin's thing? where she says, I failed, I failed miserably. First of all, I'm a woman and to be successful in this life, you need to be a man. And now I'm an old woman, if anything could be more failed. And then she goes on to say that the heroic journey that everybody follows is all about men and the big thing, the big sticking out thing and the stick and that the women's story. And she says, maybe the gathering and, 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 and husk, you know, the separating the husk from the chap, Maybe it's not as compelling a story, but maybe it is as compelling a story. And it's only that we just haven't told it that it isn't as compelling. And that we, 53% of the fucking world is sucked into telling 
this story that has to do all with the big sticky out thing and nothing with the carrying thing, the the anything, right? And yeah. uh, if you can find that, she was a science fiction writer, but she was yeah, a brilliant yeah. writer and very funny too. So Good. if you can find that essay, you know, she just goes, I am, I'm just a failure. First of all, by not being a man and then by being old. Oh my God, you know, could I be more failed in this society? So uh, yeah, read her. She's she's wonderful. I will. Thank okay. you for your time. Take care, Thanks darling. Bye-bye. Gosh, wasn't Mary fabulous? She is what you call a true storyteller, a raconteur, as they said. You want her at a dinner party and you get to sit beside her and let her hold court. Because even when she's just chatting, every phrase is like she's, you know, dropping little pearls of wisdom and poetry at you. Now, for me, there was a lot about that conversation to love. And I just love that she did, you know, she just got down to it, man, and just, she was so vulnerable about losing her lifelong friend, Anne-Marie. And uh, that's the thing when you have lifelong friends, you know, you're in touch and then you let them drift and slide. And that happened to me and my friend Deborah, I mentioned earlier, we were pals forever. And then just, you know, kids and life happened and Luckily, the last three years before she passed, we were able to connect and we even got to perform again about five or six months before she passed away. And gosh, it was fun to revisit those old sketches. You know, if Deborah were here, I think she would have loved that idea about the U-bend that Mary and I were talking about, that life could even get better in the later decades, right? I know that was Deb's experience and mine. I hit 50 and I just started to work more and more. So I do think Aging makes you better. Well, maybe not better, but rather you feel freer to be yourself because you feel like, what have I got to lose? You don't care what anybody thinks. So in the end, you're more authentic. Okay, okay, Bert, enough babbling from me. Listen, before we go, we will ask you to subscribe, like, follow, because, hey, you know, we'd love more people to know we're here. And if you want to know more about me, come to a show or read my books, or you just need more Deb Kimmett, check out the links in the show notes. And lastly, if you're going to keep busy, make sure it's doing what you love. Hey, Bert, let's go out on a laugh, okay, buddy? And she's a downward facing broad.